Welcome to Oilfield Talk. My name is Trey Falk, and I'm host of Oilfield Talk podcast. We want to speak with workers from all other aspects of the oil and gas industry and allow them the outlet to tell some crazy, amazing stories you just wouldn't believe are true. Not just the wildcats, the drillers, the roughnecks, the roustabouts, but the land-based offshore drilling operations, service companies, vendors, third-party personnel, production, transportation, all aspects of the industry that provide expertise throughout the oil field industry. But each of these have many, many hilarious stories to share about their time in the oil patch. I have no doubt that we will be able to share entertaining stories or tell tall tales that anyone who works in the industry will appreciate and get a hearty laugh while listening. But this is also going to be a family podcast. We'll be able to invite our families at home to listen Although they won't believe half the stories we share, they may have a couple of dozen questions. Maybe it will give them and everyone a greater appreciation of the jobs we have in the oil field and why we enjoy our oil field family for half a year. So please, take an hour or so out of your day. Give a listen to the Oil Field Talk podcast. Hope you enjoy the stories as much as I enjoy bringing them to you. TGIF, and welcome to Oilfield Talk. My name's Trey Fought. Wanted to have a short conversation. Been a busy week. Done a couple of recordings. One that will follow this introduction. Unfortunately, it was a little bit shorter than I wanted it to be. Mr. Bloom had a prior engagement, but that's all right. He still gave us some really good stories, and I'm looking forward to providing them. I was finally able to record my cousin this week, so that'll be something to look forward to next week. But to add a little bit of extra to this week's episode, I wanted to tell one of my stories, and that's uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. So when I was working in Sockland Island back in 96, Sockland Island is just north of Japan. It's actually a Russian-held island. During World War II, Russia took over the island as part of the war and, of course, never gave it back. One thing Sakhalin Island has is a lot of natural resources. They have coal, they have gas, they have oil. There have been some big discoveries at the northern tip. I was actually assigned to a land-based oil stabilization facility. They had five wells, I think. We brought in a drilling rig from Canada. They drilled a couple of more wells as well as a couple of directionals for us. The main thing they did was stabilize crude. They cracked fuel oil, jet fuel, I think diesel. And all of this was done at a small facility right on the coast. When I say this place was in the middle of nowhere, I mean middle of nowhere Russia. It was a beautiful island, but it honestly took me five days to get to work. I had to fly, I had to take a train, I had to take a truck. So it was definitely planes, trains, and automobiles to get to work. I would fly out of New Orleans, Louisiana, 
for Seattle. Once I got into SeaTac that afternoon, spend the night in Seattle and get up the next morning, go back to the airport and really start the, the longer journey. So that was one day. Next day, flew from Seattle to Anchorage, picking up more passengers. From Anchorage, we would fly to Habarsk, Russia. Usually there was a stop halfway. I think they had two different places. They would stop right at the edge of the Bering Sea, right there where the narrow gap is. Don't remember the name of that little town, but it was a little town. I uh, just remember we stopped, really didn't stop for long. Nobody deplaned, really were taking on passengers. The other route, we would fly to the Kamchatka Peninsula. That's on my top three most beautiful landings that I've ever seen or I've ever witnessed as far as the scenery of the airport flying into it. I don't remember the name of the town. It was uh, at the base of, an, of a mountain range. And flying into it, here are these enormous mountains. And at the base of the mountains, right at the edge of the ocean, is this town. And the airplane had to go in descending circles to get down to this, this small town. And as you went around, you just got to see the layers of the mountains all the way down. It was breathtaking. Again, that was another short stop. Go in there, land, deplane a few people. A few people get on the plane, take back off. Then we head to the final destination, which was Habarsk, Russia. So Habarsk was on a river that separated China from Russia. Russian Far East, they call that area. Large industrial town. I don't really know a lot of the history, but we land there, deplane, go to a hotel, spend the night. We get us a little something to eat, get us something to drink there in the hotel, and get a good night's sleep. Keep in mind, we've been flying for the last, I don't know, 12 hours or so by the time you stop and take back off. So that's another full day of, of flying. Wake up on the third day, get on a small little turboprop flying from Habarsk to Yuzhno-Sokolinsk. That's the name of the, or the big town on Sokolin Island. We'd get off of the plane. We'd drive to the hotel room. We'd get there somewhere around 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, go to a hotel downtown Yuzhno. And because we had slept the night before, I normally would just start walking around town, looking at things, go buy some things. But we had the full day to wait because the next transportation didn't start until six o'clock that evening. A lot of the architecture was Japanese architecture. It was really beautiful, especially walking around, looking at the old parts of town. After traveling for a couple of days, I like to just get out and walk, stretch my legs, and on one of those days, the coolest thing, I found a museum. Was able to go in, walk around. It was a small museum, but it was really the first time I was able to see a museum in another country. And I thought that was really neat because it looks, obviously, a lot like a museum anywhere else. Couldn't read anything, couldn't understand any of the displays, but it was fun to see something like that from another culture. Anyway, sometime around mid-afternoon, we'd usually try to find us something to eat, get us a good meal at the hotel before we left. I learned to grab some snacks, something to eat, something to drink, before getting on the train at 6 o'clock that evening. 
This train was an old Japanese train, what they call a narrow gauge train, that the wheels were closer together than what we think of as a standard locomotive. And this was truly the first time I'd ever ridden on a train. It was an adventure. We had a small private room, had two bunk beds in that room. One of the coolest things it had was a coal-fired stove for heat. And in the wintertime, you needed it. They would bring us coal to heat this stove up to provide some, some heat. Keeping in mind, up there, we're at the upper latitudes. We were getting Siberian cold coming off of the main continent. It would come across a very narrow gap of ocean. Of course, it picked up a little bit of moisture from that. But this super cold air would hit Sakhalin Island. It would dump a lot of snow. Some of the coldest temperatures I saw there was probably negative 20, 25 degrees, which is brutal cold. So in the wintertime, you definitely needed that heat. But we'd get on the train there six o'clock in the evening, have us a bite to eat, have a drink, read a book, and try to catch a nap. Our stop was about halfway up the island, and that was about 12 hours away. We'd make multiple stops during the night at other stations, but obviously mine wasn't until 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. So about an hour or so before the stop, the conductor would come, knock on your cabin, let you know, get up, get your stuff ready, won't be long. After getting the heads up, you grab your bags, get everything ready to go. The conductor lets you know it's the next stop. You go stand by the little steps and get ready because their stops only last three or four minutes, maybe five. Enough time to get all the passengers off that are getting off at that stop. Enough to get the passengers on from that stop. And then obviously the train continues. So it was it was fun. It was neat. First time I'd seen anything like that. The old Western movies with the, the train. Very similar to that. At the train stop, we were met by the staff from the facility itself. So this is where we were picked up. In the summertime, it was usually a Land Rover. They'd have two or three vehicles to pick everybody up. In the wintertime, we actually had to use what they call a Ural, which is a Russian equivalent to a deuce and a half. So it's an all-wheel drive, high-lift, strong military-type truck that had all-wheel drive to be able to climb the mountains and get through the snow. We leave the train station. We were looking at another five hours or so before we even got to camp. And this was seriously over the mountains and through the woods, past grandmother's house. It was a crazy, beautiful drive through the mountains. About halfway, we would stop for lunch. It's where they had a rail yard where they loaded the oil and the gas and the diesel and the fuel oil that we would stabilize. They'd load that onto rail cars and send it to town, send it to Yuzhna. We'd stop there and have lunch at the camp cafeteria. Unique, authentic Russian food. It was the first place I'd ever been introduced to the Russian soup, the cabbage soup. And I don't like cabbage, but I like this soup. And my favorite was what they called palamini. This was almost like a dumpling with a sausage inside of it. It was amazing. I would love to be able to find authentic Russian palamini. After lunch... We continue the trek, and now we're getting up into the high mountains. Anybody that's driven through the Rockies, yes, that's what we're talking about. But this was not a paved road. This was 
a dirt road, a gravel road, and an improved mountain road. It was wide. It was steep, but there was definitely hairpin turns and everything else. So it was slow, methodic drive. We cross over the top of the mountains, come down, five hours of driving, we pull into camp. I thought camp was a beautiful place because it was the picturesque evergreen trees, the rock streams and brooks where they caught trout, where they caught salmon. But being that that was the second place I'd ever been overseas, it was an adventure and it was really cool. So that was my crazy planes, trains, and automobile story. I want to introduce Mr. Dennis Bloom. I worked with Dennis on several different rigs over the years. Dennis was a barge captain, barge master, marine superintendent. Basically, he was responsible for the floating vessels, the modus, the semi-submersibles, mobile offshore drilling units that we had. He also did rig moves, which whenever a semi needs to be moved from one place to the other, they use tow boats and they have to pull all the anchors, connect cables to the tow boats, and then tow boats take us. And we're at a higher ballast at that point. There's some very detailed, specific things that have to happen to ensure that we're stable for transit. So I'd like to thank Dennis for allowing me to visit. Took me to a great lunch. We had a nice little boat ride around the corner to a local bar and restaurant there on the waterfront. We had fish tacos, great conversation. Hopefully Dennis will come back, give us some more stories in the future. With that said, have a great week. Talk to you soon. Welcome to Oilfield Talk. Thank you. This is Dennis Bloom. I'm in Madisonville, Louisiana, sitting on his, uh, well, we actually just went on his boat and had a, a nice little lunch. Beautiful Chifuncti River. He's going to give us some stories. Great. You ready to start? Ready. Okay. Of course, uh, I've worked for a contract drilling company for 38 years, uh, international and domestic, and also as a marine superintendent in the office at one time. No names to be mentioned. <laughs> the... Um, but one of the first uh, rigs I went to work on was the uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. They just come back from uh, from the North Sea, the Ocean Viking. They had a great group of people. I'm still in touch with some of them. Anyway, there was one little guy on the on the rig who was a BCO ballast control operator, and uh, he worked the opposite shift me. He was so at this one particular day, I was in bed, and they came and got me out of bed and says. Uh, Hey, your, your relief guy, he's, uh, he's, he's injured and he's going to have to go in. We need you down in the control room. So were you a BCO now? Or were I was you a, a BCO okay. and he was a BCO. Okay, I got so you. we worked the same rig and just opposite shifts. So anyway, the story is uh, this little guy, he was very well built, um, bodybuilder type of guy, but he was probably four foot 13, <laughs> five, five foot one, whichever you want to say. But he was, but he was a, Nice guy, but he just had no uh, mechanical abilities whatsoever, or common sense, and had a relative or somebody that got him on with the company. So uh, it was probably 1978 or, or so. And he, uh, he had gone down to the lower pump room. Well, going down to the lower pump room, you had a counterweight with a riding belt in it. Yep. And these rigs, there was straight, it was a straight run all the way down 
from so near the top. Stair, that's a, that's a, a vertical, ladder. vertical ladder with yeah. a back scratcher. And we call them back scratcher. Right. Just like a, and then the, uh, the counterweight was on the back side of, on the outside of that. And let me just for a second, the, the floaters that we're talking about, these are floating drilling rigs. Um, we'll have some pictures online just to give people that aren't aware of it. But I, I often describe it as a six pack of Coke that you put half the, the Coke in the water, half of the water in the Coke cans and it kind of sinks down and it'll float. It's got some big pontoons on it as well, but you have to go up and down these columns to go to the lower pump rooms. So that's what he's talking about. Yeah, so the lower pump rooms were in the lower halls, which are like big pontoons that go from the very front to the back of the rig. And uh, and there's pump rooms and compartments and tanks and so forth down there. But mainly he was going down to the pump room. It was like 120 feet straight down and probably 60 feet below the water line or more. <laughs> so he's inside the column um, and... Uh, to back it up a little bit, the, the two barge captains that we work for on both opposite hitches were weighed over 300 pounds apiece. These were big boys. So the counterweight was heavy. <laughs> oh, and no. uh, they probably had over 200 to 250 pounds of counterweight. So this guy, he puts on this uh, riding belt and uh, he's did the counterweight so heavy he can't go down. So he pulls himself down the ladder. Oh gosh. 120 feet like or so. Slingshot. Down the ladder. <laughs> pulling himself down the ladder with the counterweight on, um, resisting him. He gets all the way down. He, he hooks the, the hook onto the ladder and climbs out of the climbing belt, the riding belt, and does something wrong probably in the lower pump room. And then he was ready to come back up. Well, he puts the riding belt on and unhooks it and holding himself. And he starts to come up, and, and the counterweight was hung up at the very top of the, uh, of the cable. Uh-oh. It had hung on the shiv the pulley, pulley or something yeah. at the top. Right. So he starts jerking on it, <laughs> pulling, you know, jumping up and down, trying to break it oh, loose, no. and it wouldn't break loose. So in the interim, he thinks about it and says, well, I'll just come up and then... Climb the ladder without a... Climb the ladder, but he kept the belt on with the cable slack underneath him. He came oh. up about 50 feet and stepped to the side to uh, take a break. And he said, well, while I'm stopping here getting my wind, he decided he was going to pull on the cable <laughs> a little bit. And he was fortunate enough to get it loose. Oh, gosh. So that... Rocket that, ship. <laughs> so you're, so inside that counter of a, you're inside of a tube, right? So the whole tube, you put both arms out, you probably barely touch mm -hmm. the walls, right? So this is a very, very confined space. Keep in mind, this guy's climbed halfway up and is standing in the halfway up this column. With and this slack, this this rope, this uh, wire rope is down below him. And all of a sudden it comes loose with that counterweight. So what's coming up? <laughs> it's ugly. Fortunately, he was short. <laughs> and that's probably saved his life. So he stayed within the center of the column without hitting hardly anything. He did oh. bang his shoulder up yeah. and his leg, but it wasn't. It pulled him up. So he went from zero to sixty in about a half a second. <laughs> that's right. And went to the top of the top of the ladder, the other fifty or seventy feet or so, and uh, was like hanging a there. Ship. <laughs> Eventually, he was able to climb out of the uh, the harness, the, the riding belt, and get to the very top of the stairs. And he flagged down the motorman who came over and. He told the story to him, so um, we called him the Flying Dutchman from the north. <laughs> the uh, Flying Dutchman. Yeah. He definitely was flying up that <laughs> column. There's no doubt about that. Another interesting uh, event 
Oh, by the way, he was not severely injured. He was just bruised up. He didn't have any broken bones or whatever. But this goes back to some of the decisions that people make in the oil field. And some of them, in hindsight, you just shake your head and you wonder, what were they actually thinking? You know, where did they lose the connection? And again, I'm on the safety side, so I'm usually investigating this stuff. And you just shake your head like, who would... You would want to secure that. I would want to secure that and then climb out of the column. But he got the great idea that he's going to pull on it halfway up. So, uh, yeah, he paid a price. Anyway, that would have been interesting to film. Oh, it would. <laughs> another event I had uh, probably 15 years ago was on a, another semi-submersible similar type rig in the, um, in the Singapore Bay. And uh, we were waiting on a job and doing some upgrades and so forth at the time. And we got a new rig mechanic on board. And he was a real nice guy, but he was new to the rig and new to all the people. No one knew him. And uh, so he's kind of trying to make new friends. But in the meantime, he, uh, he happened to find a coconut on the rig. The coconut must have come out on a pallet or something <laughs> from shore. So he picked up this coconut. He brought it into the mechanic's office. He drew a face on it, and he called it Wilson. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so that was his first new friend on the rig was Wilson. So he'd sit there at his office desk and talk to Wilson occasionally until he could find some new friends. Well, friends. <laughs> a week or two went along, and he found some people that he could communicate with and become friends with. So he, so he decided, well, Wilson, I don't need you any longer. And so he threw Wilson over the side. Oh, gosh. Well, Two or three days later, I would launch the lifeboat to test the lifeboats, which was part of my duties. And I'm cruising around in the harbor, and I see Wilson floating by. <laughs> Did you rescue Wilson? I rescued Wilson. Oh, my gosh. Brought I him back somebody. and put him back on a mechanic's desk. Oh, gosh. And he almost had a nervous breakdown <laughs> because he knew it was Wilson because he could recognize he drew it on there. his drawing, his handwriting, everything. His coconut. And so uh, I think he finally Did you finally? It. Uh, we explained it to him. Yeah. So. <laughs> And that's just another practical joke that uh, we, we in the first episode, we talked about a lot of hazing, which I'm sure you've seen plenty of that as well. But, you know, we're always trying to prank each other or joke with each other or get something over on somebody. It's just it's the camaraderie in, in the oil field. We're we're a family out there. We work hard. We play hard. And at the same time, we prank our friends. Stories that other people have told me, which are pretty interesting. One of them uh, was by a, a man who actually lost his life on the um, up in the North Sea, not in the North Sea, but in Nova Scotia on the Ocean Ranger back in '81. Oh, wow. yep. And I was in a well control school with him. He was, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but he was an awesome guy. And he told the story of when he was working uh, on a land rig at one time. And uh, one of the guys had to go poop. He didn't want to go inside to, to go to the <laughs> go to the bathrooms. They'd, sometimes he'd go back behind the mud tanks, the mud storage tanks and so forth. And uh, so he went back there and he had wearing overalls. And so he dropped his pants and was backed up to the bulk mud tanks, not the, not the liquid mud tanks, right. but the bulk mud tanks. So there's a lot of piping and, and things and so forth in the area. So one of the other roughnecks saw him and grabbed the shovel and was hiding behind the piping of the mud tanks, <laughs> slid the shovel up underneath him, and the guy pooped right there. All right. And then the guy pulled the shovel back and disappeared with the poop. Well, the guy, you know, <laughs> finished his business. He, he gets up and he starts to 
put his clothes on and he's looking down. He's like, where's the poop? Where's the evidence? <laughs> I know something. I know something came out. Right. I felt it, right? And, you know, and so forth. So he actually took his boots off, looked inside oh, of his gosh. boots, took his coveralls <laughs> off, shook them out, turned them inside out. He wanted no to find poop. that poop. That was somewhere. It disappeared <laughs> on him. <laughs> he looked through everything and dug in the, the ground a little bit. That took to some planning for the guy that actually had the, the presence of mind, not only to have a shovel and to place it there, but then to do that quietly enough to, to, to where the guy didn't even understand what happened, uh, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. But it's, uh, there's another story about electricians. and uh, There's a lot of stories about electricians. This one, I, I hope this one's gotten around quite a bit. I've told it many times. But uh, there was a, in fact, we made a video of it on the, on the last rig I worked on. Oh, okay. We, we, we did an actual... A simulation yeah. of the of this event <laughs> and uh, it's a learning event i'm sure yeah so there's Most an electrician standing on a ladder and he's changing a light bulb that sounds like the beginning of a joke <laughs> and he's and he's holding his hands up onto the light bulb and as he's as he's holding the light fixture or the light bulb he's kind of shaking his arm and shaking his leg and another electrician walks in and sees him shaking his leg and thinks that he's being electrocuted. Oh. So he grabs a big shepherd's crook, a big right. old hook that we have in a lot of the uh, installations, yeah. and grabs the electrician off the ladder and jerks him down onto the ground. The electrician falls down and breaks his arm. <laughs> he's laying on the ground and says, why did you pull me off the ladder? He says, you were being electrocuted. He said, no, I wasn't. A bolt, a hot bolt fell off the lamp and went down my coveralls oh. and went down into oh. my, right near my underwear and I was trying to shake it out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a safety precaution, right? For anybody that's uh, not electrically inclined, uh, we have those shepherd hooks in uh, electrical spaces and it's an isolation uh, hook where you can't, can't actually get electrocuted through the hook. And it's for that purpose exactly. If they're working on some high voltage equipment and it gets a hold of them, the electrician cannot let go. The muscles actually contract. They cannot release it. So the only way to get them off is to physically pull them off or yank them off or push them off. There's a lot of different methods. Now you're done? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got more stories. How much time do you want? Well, you can got all the time There's in the There's another world. guy. Um, he was, uh, I was on a rig in the Gulf and he was a subsea hand and we we're all sitting in the safety rep's office talking stories and so forth. And the, the subsea guy falls asleep Well, he's wearing flip-flop sandals and his foot's propped up on a, on a chair. So we took out the uh, whiteout, liquid whiteout to use on papers and <laughs> painted his nails. <laughs> so for a week or so, he kept accusing everybody on the rig, trying to figure out who did it. That's he right. He didn't know who it was, but he had an idea because he didn't even he didn't even notice for like three days. He finally oh, one morning he's putting his socks on. What the hell? <laughs> he got white he toenails. There was another guy who was uh, who was a motorman years ago back when I was in the Gulf, and uh, great guy. Really admired him. Can't say his name, but. Uh, he fell asleep in the engine room with his, his tight lace-up red wing boots on, and he had his feet propped up on the, on, the, uh, on the desk. I just happened to be walking through there, and, of course, the engine rooms were quite loud. He didn't hear me, and I stopped, and I tied his shoelaces together for boat <laughs> boots. And, uh, and then I went and hid in another area and watching through the door and made a little noise where he woke up and went to stand up and oh, went flat on his face. Boom. <laughs> 
plan. And he was another one who accused everybody on the rig. He was kept trying to find out <laughs> who did this to me, who did this to me. I finally did admit it. But oh, yeah. I, I, Well, you were talking about fell asleep. I mean, how many people have fallen asleep in how many places, you know, they're at work and there's uh, the, the classic, you know, roused about under the anchor winch, needle gunning, sitting there, you know for hours with this machine that just sits there and vibrates and, uh, and, and chips the pain away. But it's so monotonous. It's so boring. And that rhythm just lull people to sleep. I can't tell you how many people we've drug out by their heels because they're fast asleep and there's so much noise. They don't, uh, they don't hear you shouting at them. Where all have you worked? I mean, uh, well, I started in the Gulf of Mexico, and in '85 uh, things slowed down. I went to Brazil for many years. Love Brazil, and uh, from there, I actually went to work in the office in New Orleans for three or four years. As a that was one shell plaza. No, no, the, the company had their own building. Oh, I thought in the, New Orleans. Oh, I thought they were in that one shell. No. Okay. No, and uh, actually two buildings there. Too, but wow! I shouldn't mention that. No, we can eat and, that yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, from there, I went. Uh, I quit for four, for three years uh, when my son was twelve until he was sixteen, and uh, where I was home with him every night yep. doing the Boy Scout stuff together. Who made Eagle Scout? Excellent. And uh, then I went back once he was sixteen. They're kind of on their own with their friends, so I went they back. Do. <laughs> I went back uh, and built a rig here in the in Gulf, and went. Uh, Worked in the Gulf a little longer, then I went back overseas to uh, Singapore, built a rig there, worked it for a while, went to Egypt for a few years. Oh, before that, I even, I was in, uh, before Egypt was Tunisia for a year, and then we mm -hmm. went to Egypt, yep. and for many years I didn't want to be there, but uh, <laughs> they wouldn't let me leave because right. nobody else wanted to do that nasty rig mover job. And right. It no. was very complicated dealing with the Egyptians and so forth. They are challenging. But uh, I made some good friends there, too. I Everywhere did. I went, I was still in touch with some of the people on Absolutely. Facebook and things. Great people all over the world. Just uh, there's a few that you don't want to associate with. But. And all the, well, no, all the different cultures that we've met, all the different um, you know, situations that we've been placed in. I learned early on that eh, people are people. You know, you, doesn't, you can take the country away. You can take the religions away. You can take all those things. It's just people being people, and as long as everybody's self-respect, you have great working relationships. I worked in uh, even Venezuela back in the early 90s before it became communist, and we had two little jack-up rigs that go down and move them. In the lake? Or you in yeah, the lake? Lake Maracaibo, Venezuela. Yep. Someday they're going to let us back in there because they've still got a lot of oil. Yeah, then they'll nationalize us again, take everything away. That's exactly <laughs> how they lost it the first time. Twice. I understand now they are like getting little to nothing out of their infrastructure. They've just ruined it so bad. <laughs> they're actually starting to allow foreigners back in just to fix what they've lost and destroyed. Other places I work was Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, all over different parts of the East. Indonesia was was interesting. A lot of deep water activity yep. stuff. Great companies to work for. You know, a lot of third world countries are, are amazing. You know, they just oh, they are amazing countries, and they've got a lot of natural resources. And there's a lot of companies in those areas. We're fortunate enough we get to go, not just travel to, but work with. Right, and. Uh, but Australia was the last place I worked, and that was amazing. I mean, they're just so organized, so structured, great people to work with. Just um, the closest culture to South Louisiana. 
is 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 there's actually two of them the brazilians mm-hmm. they have that same family feel and the australians especially mm-hmm. western australia there's a lot of kiwis from new zealand that work worked I in like, australia I like too. New zealand. and yep. they're hard-working people yes, they too are. they're made they're the, some of my favorite people and new zealand's a beautiful country you got I did to a, a motorcycle ride. Yeah, there. I did a 14-day trip around the Southern Island on a 1600cc BMW motorcycle, <laughs> which was amazing machinery. Dennis has been riding bikes <laughs> since he was probably 12. <laughs> yeah, I rode uh, I rode in Vietnam on a little Chinese bike for five days around the southern part of Vietnam with a guide. I went in uh, Phuket, Thailand. I rented a bike, a Harley Davidson police bike. It was built and used as a police bike here in the United States. Oh, and, it was an American uh, Harley. Yeah, American oh, Harley. Wow. It was tricked out. It had, you know, big bore kit, everything. Yep. It was fast. I had a guide with me, and we rode around southern part, uh, south of uh, Thailand, all around Thailand, basically, yeah. for a few days. And that was an amazing trip, too. We had a hurricane come into the uh, Gulf of China. Uh, is it the Gulf of China? South anyway, China Sea. South China Sea. That's it. So we had a hurricane coming in, and we actually had to evacuate. And we went ashore in Vong Tau. And... You know, we had a couple of days before the storm got there, and we actually rented little scooters. I cannot tell you. I, we explored all over the place. I'd go four or five hours away. Vietnamese love Americans because we oh, tip. Yes. A lot of these countries, uh, because we tip, and it's not because other countries don't normally tip. They just, their minimum wages are higher, than, unlike what we have here in the restaurant business. So we're, you know, we're naturally higher tippers and Mm -hmm. and well we're also in their country we we want them to you know prosper and they're good people they're friendly people my doctor i had a a a south vietnamese doctor that worked on the rig and he came and got me and one day took me to a spa not a spa what is a resort it was a big thermal resort they had hot mud baths they had the it was really cool you know, the old water wells that had the bricks around, the rocks stacked around them, and they had the little crank on the top, like mm-hmm. the classic mm-hmm. mental picture of a water well. Well, this area had probably a dozen of these little water wells. I couldn't figure out what it was. Over on the side, there was a little kiosk, and this lady is selling chicken eggs. You would buy three or four eggs, how many ever you wanted. You go to one of these little water wells, you put your eggs in the bucket, you lower the bucket down and the water at the bottom is boiling. It's, it's a thermal area. So this hot water boils the eggs in 10 minutes or whatever. You crank them back up and you eat boiled eggs. It's just one of those little neat things that you just have to be in that area to see something like that. So backing up to the story of my motorcycle trip in New Zealand, uh, just a, I'd left Australia just a, shortly before I went to New Zealand for the trip. And while I was in Australia offshore, a typhoon chases off the rig. We had to evacuate for a week or so. So it, uh, once I left uh, Australia after being through the typhoon experience, I got in New Zealand. And the last day I was riding the motorcycle, the big BMW, I thought I had a flat tire. My bike started shimmying. So I pulled over to the side of a road, a little rest area. And these ladies came walking up to me and said, did you feel that? I'm looking at the back tire on the bike thinking I had a flat tire. I says, no, it's a 6.8 earthquake. Oh, gosh. And we were 20 miles from the epicenter. Oh, wow. I said, wow, I've never been in an earthquake before. That's right. And, uh, I've never either. And so uh, that it night. Was rattling your bike while you were riding. Yeah, yeah. So Ooh. that night, we had, well, actually, we had turned the bikes in that, after, that evening. 
and went to a hotel and it was three of us and uh, we had three separate hotel rooms. I had taken a shower and I laid down on the bed before I went out partying that night <laughs> and uh, was taking a little power nap, totally naked on top of the bed and all of a sudden an aftershock hit. <laughs> and so half asleep, I jump up, grab the front door and I stepped outside the front door <laughs> naked and it was cold, so it's probably a little shrinkage going on. <laughs> and uh, and there's probably cameras in the in the hallway of the hotel. And I'm like, you know, I'm naked. It's cold, and I don't have a key. And I'm about to lock myself out of the room. So Might be a good idea. I, to I stay. woke up enough to get back in and <laughs> and and ride it out. And then when I got home a few couple of days later, watching the news, and there's all kinds of emergency alerts going on. There's a tornado that just went through Slidell, um, not Slidell, but uh, Laplace, sure. and it was coming through across, across Lake Pontchartrain and aiming for the Chifuncta River, and I live right here on Chifuncta yep. River. And so uh, my neighbor, lady lives next door, came running over with a bottle of wine and a glass in her hand, <laughs> and said, oh, the tornado coming? I'm like, yeah, well, she goes and gets in my closet. That's my not bathroom. gonna do you any good, a I, bottle of wine. I still had my, my motorcycle helmet with the GoPro mounted on top, which I was recording in New Zealand, and I put that on and grabbed my phone and started video, and I stepped out on the front porch to video this tornado coming <laughs> oh, up gosh. The, the river. You know, I had my helmet on, so yeah, safety safe. conscious. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, uh, Fortunately, it didn't hit us. It, it missed us by half a mile or so, but uh, it did some local destruction. Well, a few so. years ago, I, w I happened to be riding back through, uh, I was in Pascagoula uh, at work, and I was coming back home, and I love to take 22 and 190, just the low country roads, and I got right there between, not Madisonville, um, Mandeville. Or Mandeville, mm -hmm. yeah, because we're in Madisonville now. Yeah. So Mandeville's just just down the road, maybe five or six miles, something like that. Anyway, I was coming down and my phone blew up with the uh, weather alert. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a weather nerd. I've got like probably five or six different weather apps. So I pulled over on the side of the road and I look up and this is a tornado that is pretty much doing the same thing you said. It was coming right for Mandeville, I mean, Madisonville. And I called you on the phone that day and I tried. Well, I finally got a hold of you. It happened to go just, just on the other side of the Chifuncti. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it was really close. But to finish that story, so my neighbor, who was uh, pretty much finished that bottle of wine by then, <laughs> uh, we hop in my truck and we go down the river road to the near the mouth of the river, Chifuncti River, which is just not even two miles from here. And uh, I ran into the uh, police chief of Madisonville. I pulled up alongside of him and I told him, hey, I just went through a, a cyclone in uh, Australia and an earthquake in <laughs> New Zealand. In New Zealand, and then now a tornado in my hometown. And he looks at me, and he looks at the lady, my neighbor, sitting next to me in the truck. Says, "You sure you want to be around this guy? He, he looks out. like he's high risk." <laughs> Dennis is high risk. <laughs> there you go. That's good. That's good. So we uh, Christchurch. I worked in New Zealand for a short time, and I got to stay in Christchurch. And it was beautiful. We stayed downtown right there at the Catholic Church. But they had that huge earthquake that came. Uh, it was probably about three or four years after I was there and just totally destroyed that area, messed up that church real bad. It was it was sad to hear that much damage had been done in that area. But they're resilient. They build back and they're oh, tough. They have, yeah, they have a lot of earthquakes often. They're very accustomed to them, just not that significant. Right. No, this was a big one. Mm -hmm.
All right. You got anything else you want to tell? No, I'm, I'm good for the moment. But well, I appreciate we'll, it, Dennis. I'll uh, definitely stay in touch, and hopefully in the future we'll get back together and tell some more yarns and tell some more stories, maybe uh, identify some of your favorite places around the world. Thank you much. All right, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. Nomad Mobile Productions is a broadcasting and media production company that produces podcasts and provides a mobile podcast studio complete with audio and video recording equipment. We also offer post-production processing, editing, marketing, and publication for podcasts. Our mobile production studio will come to you. Visit our webpage, nomadmobileproductions.com, or our Facebook, 